Part Four of Sherlock the Last by Lee Douglas Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Four. They were approaching the end of the long hall. The sickly light from the fumaroles showed the last of the lines of seated figures. Had they died there like that, sitting up, or had they been brought here afterward? The rows on each side ended evenly, the last chairs exactly opposite each other. But against the blank end wall was a solitary seat of stone facing down the full gloomy length of the hall, and on it sat a man-like shape of alabaster, very still, the stony hands folded rigidly upon the stony thighs. A figure no different from the others except except that the eyes were still alive. The Corins dropped back a little. All but Galt. He stayed beside Trevor, his head bent, his mouth sullen and nervous, not looking up at all. And Trevor stared into the remote and somber eyes that were like two pieces of cornelian in that pale alabaster face, and yet were living, sentient full of a deep and alien sorrow. It was very silent in the catacomb. The dreadful eyes studied Trevor, and, just for a moment, his hatred was tempered by a strange pity as he thought what it must be like for the brain, the intelligence behind those eyes, already entombed and knowing it. A long living and a long dying, the blessing and the curse of my people. The words were soundless, spoken inside his brain. Trevor started violently. Almost he turned to flee, remembering the torture of that moment in the canyon. And then he found that, while he had been staring, a force as gentle and stealthy as the gliding of a shadow had already invaded him, and he was forbidden. At this range I do not need the sunstones, murmured the silent voice within him. Once I did not need them at all, but I am old. Trevor stared at the stony thing that watched him. And then he thought of Jen, of Hugh, lying dead with a dead hawk in the dust, and the strangeness left him, and his bitter passion flared again. So you hate me as well as fear me, little human. You would destroy me? There was a gentle laughter inside Trevor's mind. I have watched generations of humans die so swiftly. And yet I am here, as I was before they came, waiting. You won't be here forever, snarled Trevor. These others like you died, you will. Yes, but it is a slow dying, little human. Your body chemistry is like that of the plants, the beasts based upon carbon. Quick to grow quick to wither away. Ours was of another sort. We were like the mountains, cousin to them, 
our body cells built of silicon, even as theirs. And so our flesh endures until it grows slow and stiff with age. But even then we must wait long, very long, for death. Something of the truth of that long waiting came to Trevor, and he felt a shuddering thankfulness for the frailty of human flesh. I am the last, whispered the silent voice. For a while I had companionship of minds, but the others are all gone before me long ago. Trevor had a nightmare vision of Mercury in some incalculable future eon, a frozen world taking its last plunge into the burned-out sun, bearing with it these endless rows of alabaster shapes, sitting in their chairs of stone, upright in the dead blackness underneath the ice. He fought back to reality, clutching his hatred as a swimmer clings to a plank his voice raw with passion and bitterness as he cried out, "'Yes, I'll destroy you if I can. What else could you expect after what you've done?' "'Oh, no, little human. You will not destroy me. You will help me.' Trevor glared. "'Help you? Not if you kill me.' "'There will be no killing.' You would be of no use to me dead. But alive you can serve me. That is why you were spared. Serve you? Like them? He swung to point to the waiting Korins. But the Korins were not waiting now. They were closing in on him, their hands reaching for him. Trevor struck out at them. He had a fleeting thought of how weird this battle of his with the Korins must look like as they struck and staggered on the stone paving beneath the looming watching thing of stone. But even as he had that thought, the moment of struggle ended. An imperious command hit his brain, and black oblivion closed down upon him like the sudden clenching of a fist. Darkness. He was lost in it, and he was not himself any more. He fled through the darkness, groping, crying out for something that was gone. And a voice answered him, a voice that he did not want to hear. Darkness, dreams. Dawn high on the blazing mountains. He stood in the city, watching the light grow bright and pitiless, watching it burn on the upper walls, and then slip downward into the streets casting heavy shadows in the openings of door and window, so that the houses looked like skulls with empty eye-holes and gaping mouths. The buildings no longer seemed too big. He walked between them, and when he came to steps he climbed them easily, and the window ledges were no higher than his head. He knew these buildings. He looked at each one as he passed, naming it, and remembering with a long, long memory. The hawks came down to him, the faithful servants with the sunstones in their brows. He stroked their pliant necks, and they hissed softly with pleasure, but their shallow minds were empty of everything but that vague sensation. 
He passed on through the familiar streets, and in them nothing stirred. All through the day from dawn to sunset, and in the darkness that came afterward, nothing stirred, and there was a silence among the stones. He could not endure the city. His time was not yet, though the first subtle hints of age had touched him. But he went down into the catacombs and took his place with those others who were waiting and could still speak to him with their minds, so that he should not be quite alone with the silence. The years went by, leaving no traces of themselves in the unchanging gloom of the mortuary halls. One by one those last few minds were stilled until all were gone, and by that time age had chained him where he was, unable to rise and go again into the city where he had been young, the youngest of all. Shalak they had named him, the last. So he waited alone, and only one who was kin to the mountains could have borne that waiting in the place of the dead. Then, in a burst of flame and thunder, new life came into the valley. Human life, soft, frail, receptive life, intelligent, unprotected, possessed of violent and bewildering passions. Very carefully, taking its time, the mind of Shalak reached out and gathered them in. Some of the men were more violent than the others. Shanak saw their emotions in patterns of scarlet against the dark of his inner mind. They had already made themselves masters, and a number of these frail, sensitive brains had snapped out swiftly because of them. These I will take for my own, thought Shanak. Their mind patterns are crude but strong, and I am interested in death. There had been a surgeon aboard the ship, but he was dead. However, there was no need of a surgeon for what was about to be done. When Shanok had finished talking to the men he had chosen, telling them of the sunstones, telling them the truth, but not all of it, when those men had eagerly agreed to the promise of power, Shanok took complete control and the clumsy convict hands that moved now with such exquisite skill were as much his instruments as the scalpels of the dead surgeon that they wielded, making the round incision and the delicate cutting of the bone. Who was the man that lay there, quiet under the knife? Who were the ones that bent above him with the strange stones in their brows? Names! There are names, and I know them! Closer, closer. I know that man who lies there with blood between his eyes. Trevor screamed. Someone slapped him across the face, viciously and with intent. He screamed again, fighting, clawing, still blinded by the visions and the dark mists, and that voice that he dreaded so much spoke gently in his mind. It's all over, Trevor. It is done. The hard hand slapped him again, and a rough human voice said hoarsely, "'Wake up! Wake up, damn it!' He woke. He was in the middle of a vast room, crouched down in the attitude of a fighter, shivering, sweating, his hands outstretched and grasping nothing. He must have sprung there, half unconscious, 
from the tumbled pallet of skins against the wall. Galt was watching him. Welcome, Earthman. How does it feel to be one of the masters? Trevor stared at him. A burning flood of light fell in through the tall windows so high above his head, setting the sunstone ablaze between the Corin's sullen brows. Trevor's gaze fixed on that single point of brilliance. "'Oh, yes,' said Galt. "'It's true.' It struck Trevor with an ugly shock that Galt's lips had not moved and that he had made no audible sound. "'The stones give us a limited ability,' Galt went on, still without speaking aloud. "'Not like his, of course. But we can control the hawks and exchange ideas between us when we want to, if the range isn't too far. Naturally, our minds are open to him any time he wants to pry. "'There's no pain,' Trevor whispered, desperately trying to make the thing not be so. "'My head doesn't ache.' "'Of course not. He takes care of that.' Shanak? "'If it isn't so, how do I know that name? And that dream, that endless nightmare in the catacombs?' Galt winced. "'We don't use that name. He doesn't like it.' He looked at Trevor. "'What's the matter, Earthman? Why so green? You were laughing once, remember? Where's your sense of humor now?' He caught Trevor abruptly by the shoulders and turned him around so that he faced a great sheet of polished glassy substance set into the wall. A mirror for giants, reflecting the whole huge room, reflecting the small dwarfed figures of the men. "'Go on,' said Galt, pushing Trevor ahead of him. "'Take a look.' Trevor shook off the Corin's grasp. He moved forward by himself, close to the mirror. He set his hands against the chill surface and stared at what he saw there, and it was true. Between his brows a sunstone winked and glittered, and his face, the familiar, normal, not-too-bad face he had been used to all his life, was transformed into something monstrous and unnatural, a goblin mask with a third and evil eye. A coldness crept into his heart and bones. He backed away a little from the mirror, his hands moving blindly upward slowly toward the stone that glistened between his brows. His mouth was twisted like a child's, and two tears rolled down his cheeks. His fingers touched the stone, and then the anger came. He sank his nails into his forehead, clawing at the hard stones, not caring if he died after he had torn it out. Galt watched him. His lips smiled, but his eyes were hateful. Blood ran down the sides of Trevor's nose. The sunstone was still there. He moaned and thrust his nails in deeper and Shannok let him go until he had produced one stab of agony that cut his head in two and nearly dropped him. Then Shannok sent in the full force of his mind, not in anger, for he felt none, and not in cruelty, for he was no more cruel than the mountain he was kin to, but simply because it was necessary. 
Trevor felt that cold and lonely power roll down on him like an avalanche. He braced himself to meet it, but it broke his defenses, crushed them, made them nothing, and moved onward against the inmost citadel of his mind. In that reeling, darkened fortress all that was wholly Trevor crouched and clung to its armament of rage, remembering dimly that once, in a narrow canyon, it had driven back this enemy and broken free. And then some crude animal instinct far below the level of conscious thought warned him not to press the battle now, to bury his small weapon and wait letting this last redoubt of which he was yet master go untouched and perhaps unnoticed by his captor. Trevor let his hands dro drop limply and his mind go slack. The cold black tide of power passed, and then he felt it slide away, withdrawing from those threatened walls. Out of the edges of it Shannok spoke. Your mind is tougher than these valley-bred Korans. They are well-conditioned, but you, you remember that you defied me once. The contact was imperfect then. It is not imperfect now. Remember that too, Trevor." Trevor drew in a long, unsteady breath. He whispered, "'What do you want of me?' Go and see the ship. Your mind tells me that it understands these things. See if it can be made to fly again." That order took Trevor completely by surprise. The ship? But why? Shannok was not used to having his wishes questioned, but he answered patiently. I have still a while to live several of your short generations. I have had too much of this valley, too much of these catacombs. I want to leave them." Trevor could understand that. Having had that nightmare glimpse into Shannok's mind, he could perfectly understand. For one brief moment he was torn with pity for this trapped creature who was alone in the universe. And then he wondered, what would you do if you could leave the valley? What would you do to another settlement of men? Who knows? I have one thing left to me, curiosity. You take the Korans with you and the hawks? Some. They are my eyes and ears, my hands and feet. But you object, Trevor. What difference does that make? said Trevor bitterly. I'll go look at the ship." "'Come on,' said Galt, taking up an armful of torches. "'I'll show you the way.' They went out through the tall door into the streets between the huge, square, empty houses, the streets and houses that Trevor had known in his dream, remembering when there were lights and voices in them. Trevor noticed only that Galt was leading him out on the opposite side of the city toward the part of the valley he had never visited. And then his mind reverted to something that not even the shock of his awakening could drive out of his consciousness. Jen! A sudden panic sprang up in him, 
How long had it been since the darkness fell on him there in the catacomb? Long enough for almost anything to happen. He envisioned Jen being torn by hawks, of her body lying dead as Hughes had lain, and he started to reach out for Galt, who had owned them both. But abruptly Shalak spoke to him, in that eerie, silent way he was getting used to. The woman is safe. Here, look for yourself. His mind was taken firmly and directed into a channel completely new to him. He felt a curious small shock of contact, and suddenly he was looking down from a point somewhere in the sky at a walled paddock with a number of tiny figures in it. His own eyes would have seen them as just that, but the eyes he was using now were keen as an eagle's, though they saw no color but only black and white, and the shadings in between. So he recognized one of the distant figures as Jen. He wanted to get closer to her, much closer, and rather sulkily his point of vision began to circle down, dropping lower and lower. Jen looked up. He saw the shadow of wide wings sweep across her, and realized that, of course, he was now using one of the hawks. He pulled it back so as not to frighten her, but not before he had seen her face. The frozen stoniness was gone, and in its place had come the look of a wounded tigress. "'I want her,' Trevor said to Shalak. "'She belongs to Galt. I do not interfere.' Galt shrugged. "'You're welcome.' but keep her chained. She's too dangerous now for anything but hawk meat. The ship was not far beyond the city. It lay canted over on its side, just clear of a low spur jutting out from the barrier cliff. It had hit hard, and some of the main plates were buckled, but from the outside the damage did not seem irreparable, if you had the knowledge and the tools to work with. Three hundred years ago it might have been made to fly again. Only those who had the knowledge and the will were dead, and the convicts wanted to stay where they were. The tough metal of the outer skin, alloyed to resist friction that could burn up a meteor, had stood up pretty well under three centuries of Mercurian climate. It was corroded, and where the breaks were the inner shells were eaten through with rust but the hulk still retained the semblance of a ship. "'Will it fly?' asked Shalak eagerly. "'I don't know yet,' Trevor answered. Galt lighted a torch and gave it to him. "'I'll stay out here.' Trevor laughed. "'How are you ever going to fly over the mountains?' "'You'll see to that when the time comes,' Galt muttered. "'Take the rest of these torches. It's dark in there.' Trevor climbed in through the gaping lock, moving with great caution on the tilted, rust-red decks. Inside the ship was a shambles. Everything had been stripped out of it that could be used, leaving only bare cubicles with the enamel peeling off the walls and a moldering litter of junk. In a locker, forward of the airlock, he found a number of spacesuits. The fabric was rotted away but a few of the helmets were still good and some half-score of the oxygen bottles had survived, the gas still in them. Shalak urged him on impatiently. "'Get to the essentials, Trevor!' 
The bridge room was still intact, though the multiple thicknesses of glassite in the big ports showed patterns of spidery cracks. Trevor examined the controls. He was strictly a planetary spacer, used to flying his small craft within spitting distance of the world he was prospecting, and there were a few gadgets here he didn't understand, but he could figure the board well enough. Not far, Trevor, only over the mountains. I know from your mind, and I remember from the minds of those who died after the landing, that beyond the mountain wall there is a plain of dead rock more than a hundred of your reckonings in miles, and then another ridge that seems solid but is not, and beyond that pass there is a fertile valley twenty times bigger than Corinth, where earthmen live. Only partly fertile, and the mines that brought the earthmen are pretty well worked out. But a few ships still land there, and a few earthmen still hang on. That is best, a small place to begin. To begin what? Who can tell? You don't understand, Trevor. For centuries I have known exactly what I would do. There is a kind of rebirth in not knowing. Trevor shivered and went back to studying the controls. The wiring, protected by layers of imperviblast insulation and conduit, seemed to be in fair shape. The generator room below had been knocked about, but not too badly. There were spare batteries. Corroded, yes, but if they were charged they could hold for a while. Will it fly? I told you I don't know yet. It would take a lot of work. There are many slaves to do this work. Yes, but without fuel it's all useless. See if there is fuel. The outlines of that hidden thing in Trevor's secret mind were coming clearer now. He didn't want to see them out in the full light where Shalak could see them too. He thought hard about generators, batteries, and the hooking up of leads. He crept among the dark bowels of the dead ship, working toward the stern. The torch made a red and smoky glare that lit up deserted wardrooms and plundered holes. One large compartment had a heavy barred and bolted door that had been bent like tin in the crash. That's where they came from, Trevor thought, like wolves out of a trap. In the lower holes that had taken the worst of the impact, were quantities of mining equipment and farm machinery, all smashed beyond use but formidable-looking nonetheless, with rusty blades and teeth and queer hulking shapes. They made him think of weapons, and he let the thought grow, adorning it with pictures of men going down under whirring reapers. Shalak caught it. Weapons? They could be used as such, but the metal in them would repair the hull. He found the fuel bunkers. The main supply was used to the last grain of fissionable dust, but the emergency bunkers still showed some content on the mechanical gauges. Not much, but enough. A hard excitement began to stir in Trevor, too big to be hidden in that secret corner of his mind. He didn't try. He let it loose, and Sherlock murmured, you are pleased. The ship will fly, 
and you are thinking that when you reach that other valley and are among your own people again, you will find means to destroy me. Perhaps, but we shall see. In the smoky torchlight, looking down from a sagging catwalk above the firing chambers and the rusty sealed-in tubes, Trevor smiled. A lie could be thought as well as spoken, and Shalak, in a manner of speaking, was only human. I'll need help, all the help there is. You'll have it. It'll take time. Don't hurry me and don't distract me. Remember, I want to get over the mountains as bad as you do. Shalak laughed. Trevor got more torches and went to work in the generator room. He felt that Shalak had withdrawn from him, occupied now with rounding up the Korins and the slaves. But he did not relax his caution. The open areas of his mind were filled with thoughts of vengeance to come when he reached that other valley. Gradually the exigencies of wrestling with antiquated and partly ruined machinery drove everything else away. That day passed, and a night, a half another day before all the leads were hooked the way he wanted them, before one creaky generator was operating on one-quarter normal output and the best of the spare batteries were charging. He emerged from the torchlit obscurity into the bridge, blinking mole-like in the light, and found Galt sitting there. "'He trusts you,' the Corin said, "'but not too far.' Trevor scowled at him. Exhaustion, excitement, and a feeling of fate had combined to put him into an unreal state where his mind operated more or less independently. A hard protective shell had formed around that last little inner fortress so that it was hidden even from himself, and he had come almost to believe that he was going to fly this ship to another valley and battle Shalak there. So he was not surprised to hear Shalak say softly in his mind, You might try to go away alone. I wouldn't want that, Trevor. Trevor grunted. Huh, I thought you controlled me so well I couldn't spit if you forbade it. I am dealing with much here that I don't comprehend. We were never a mechanical people. Therefore some of your thoughts while I read them clearly, have no real meaning for me. I can handle you, Trevor, but I'm taking no chances with the ship. Don't worry, Trevor told him. I can't possibly take the ship up before the hull's repaired. It would fall apart on me. That was true, and he spoke it honestly. Nevertheless, said Shalak, Galt will be there as my hands and feet an extra guard over that object which you call a control bank, which your mind tells me is the key to the ship. You are forbidden to touch it until it is time to go. Trevor heard Shalak's silent laughter. Treachery is implicit in your mind, Trevor. But I'll have time. Impulses come swiftly and cannot be read beforehand. But there is an interval between the impulse and the realization of it. Only a fraction of a second, perhaps. But I'll have time to stop you. Trevor did not argue. 
He was shaking a little with the effort of not giving up his last pitiful individuality, of fixing his thoughts firmly on the next step toward what Shalak wanted, and looking neither to the right nor to the left of it. He ran a grimy hand over his face, shrinking from the touch of the alien disfigurement in his forehead, and said sullenly, "'The holes have to be cleared. The ship won't lift that weight any more. And we need the metal for repairs.' He thought again strongly of weapons. "'Send the slaves.' "'No,' said Shalak firmly. "'The Khorans will do that. We won't put any potential weapons in the hands of the slaves.' Trevor allowed a wave of disappointment to cross his mind, and then he shrugged. "'All right, but get them at it.' He went and stood by the wide ports looking out over the plain toward the city. The slaves were gathered at a safe distance from the ship, waiting like a herd of cattle until they should be needed. Some mounted corins guarded them while the hawks wheeled overhead. Coming toward the ship, moving with a resentful slowness, was a little army of corins. Trevor could sense the group thought quite clearly. In all their lives they had never soiled their hands with labor and they were angry that they had now to do the work of slaves. Digging the nails into his palms, Trevor went aft to show them what to do. He couldn't keep it hidden much longer, this thing that he had so painfully concealed under layers of half-truths and deceptions. It had to come out soon, and Shalak would know. In the smoky glare of many torches, the Corins began to struggle with the rusting masses of machinery in the afterholds. "'Send more down here,' Trevor said to Shalak. "'These things are heavy.' "'They're all there now except those that guard the slaves. They cannot leave.' "'All right,' said Trevor. "'Make them work.' He went back along the canting decks, along the tilted passages, moving slowly at first, then swifter, swifter, his bare feet scraping on the flakes of rust, his face with a third uncanny eye gone white and strangely set. His mind was throwing off muddy streams of thought, confused and meaningless, desperate camouflage, to hide until the last second what was underneath. Trevor! That was Shalak, alert, alarmed. End of part four.